I'm Alexis Martinez. And I'm Juliana Valencia. The Florida Powerball Lottery is up to a record $550 million, and tonight there could be one winner taking it all home with them if luck is on their side. The odds of winning the jackpot are $175 million to one. But that's not stopping Gainesville residents from turning out in record numbers to buy a ticket and a chance at the money. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM's Clint Holzaffel has more on the story. Played these numbers now for a year and a half. I haven't really done the math, but I don't think we've invested that much into it. But close, probably. <laughs> at the Gainesville Lottery Office, Sonia Sneed is a local Gainesville resident who is among the many people swept up in the chance to win big in the Florida Powerball Lottery. Record numbers of people have flocked to supermarkets, convenience stores, and gas stations to buy Powerball tickets. The Powerball Lottery is up to a record $550 million, but the odds of actually winning are slim to none. Sneed says she's not too optimistic, but her husband may be. Uh, probably not very good. I'm just not lucky that way. Like I said, my husband plays. He's the lucky one. He picks the numbers. He does all that every night. According to a recent article in the Huffington Post, people have better odds of dying from being left-handed, dating a supermodel, or becoming an astronaut than actually winning the Powerball jackpot. According to the district manager for the Gainesville, Florida Lottery Office, Ron Bennett, those may be better odds, but they don't come with the money. Oh, they're all better odds, but you're not going to win $600 million, $550 million with a $2 play. That's you nice. know, odds are you could walk out here and get hit by a car. You know, you have no control over anything. And you have no control over the lottery. You just, it's a chance. You, you play it for the entertainment, for the hopes, you know. What's the difference? You know, you go out and you spend 400 bucks on an iPod or something. What have you got? To play games on, most of them, kids play games on them. They spend 400 bucks for an iPod. They spend $2 on a lottery ticket. You know, they can get a lot more of that $2 lottery ticket than, than, than most. Bennett says the lottery isn't just odds and money, but a way for people to hope. But, you know, playing the lottery, it's not, it's, it's a dream. You know, you, you, you spend a couple of bucks on something that you can look forward to until the drawing, and then if it doesn't happen, well... You go to the next day, but it's, it gives you a chance to get out of that real world and get into a little fantasy here. What can I do with all that money? You know? But hopefully they'll be prepared if they do win. You know? They don't rush out. They need to get some financial uh, advice, that type of stuff. The Powerball lottery has been rolling over and accumulating millions since October. Bennett says if it rolls over again, the sum would be astronomical. We're looking for probably a $900 million dollar jackpot if it rolls and right now it's looking at uh as of this morning like 60 percent of the numbers have been played so by the end of the day it'll be a little higher than that but uh, with all the play that's going on so even with the odds against everyone bennett says there could still be a number of winners i mean you could have 100 winners if they all have the same numbers and if they pick numbers you know if they pick their own numbers and don't use the quick pick quick pick is is run random numbers run through and they could be several people that have those numbers pop up when you're playing this kind of jackpot with this many people playing and uh, a lot of people pick the same numbers birth dates and that type of mm -hmm. stuff but you never know you either have five six winners no winners at all so it's all luck pure luck back in the lottery office Sonia Sneed says she knows what she'll use the money for if she wins 
Well, probably get my family settled, you know, have everybody have a nice home and a, a nice vehicle so that they don't have to worry about that. The same with our home. Um, and then probably uh, spouse abuse or victims advocate for them. So, Despite her hopes, Sneed's still not too optimistic. Right. I'll probably be struck by lightning before I win. <laughs> For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Clint Holzaffel reporting. And with the jackpot being its largest in the history of the lottery, some lucky people could become very wealthy in just a couple of hours. But what happens to those who have the winning numbers? The Florida Lottery's Gainesville Bureau Manager Rob Ron Bennett says he doesn't think anyone should worry about their safety after winning, but says hiding their identity is not an option. Oh, that would be up to them. They'd have to go to Tallahassee to claim their money. So it would, you know, they would. They're not exempt from uh, releasing their name to the public. They have to do that. It's a public privacy type deal, you know. But uh, as far as photos or that type of stuff, they're not not required to. The safety of the winners is not the only safety at risk. The stores selling the tickets have been selling more tickets than usual. But Bennett believes all, all selling locations should be safe regardless of the extra foot traffic at the stores. I don't think it'll be a problem. It just depends on you know, how, how they handle their security as far as money in the stores goes. You know, I mean, it's not most. A lot of the stores, uh, they have money in the check cashing stores or whatever. You know, they do all kind of things. But uh, your supermarkets are pretty much your busiest stores. They do the most foot traffic, have the most sales. So they're pretty well secure. Gainesville resident Sonia Sneed won some money on Wednesday, but she allowed her husband to tell whoever he wanted to. My husband would. He wouldn't be able to keep his mouth shut. I haven't told anybody about this yet, and I'm sure he's burned up his phone. If no one wins tonight, the Powerball winnings could go up to $900 million. The economy remains the one of the biggest issues facing politicians. Democrats and Republicans disagree on the best way to fix it. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM's Maggie Schwartzman tells us why Congressman-elected Ted Yoho thinks compromise may be the way to reduce the national debt. The economy was the biggest issue in the election earlier this month. It remains the most important issue for many politicians. The threat of the American economy falling off the fiscal cliff is on the minds of citizens and politicians alike. Florida Congressman Ted Yoho spoke to NPR Wednesday morning to discuss why this issue is so important. Yoho is a Republican and is against raising taxes, but he did not sign the famous No Tax Pledge written by lobbyist Grover Norquist. According to his interview with NPR, Yoho doesn't believe signing this pledge is the way to solve the problem of our national debt. I didn't sign that because just my philosophy is I gave a pledge to the people in my district. You know, signing a pledge is not going to fix our debt problems or our financial woes in this country. Yoho says he made no pledges to voters during his campaign. He told NPR signing the Norquist Pledge would have left him too strictly bound to do his job the right way. And that, that goes back to the Norquist Pledge. You know, if you sign a pledge like that, you've got handcuffs on. The people of our district were just kind of fed up in the direction of the country, the inefficiencies of what was going on in Washington. And being a veterinarian, we're faced with situations with a patient that can't talk, and we've got to do our diagnostics 
and then take our diagnostics and formulate a good workable plan. Yoho, like many Republicans, is against raising taxes on the wealthy. Yoho doesn't think that America has a tax revenue problem and doesn't think that raising taxes is the way to fix the economy. However, Yoho says that he would be willing to compromise on this issue. In his interview with NPR, Yoho says he would compromise his stance on raising taxes if the money was used to reduce the national debt. Anybody I've talked to, the business people over the course of the last two and a half to three years, if it came down to where we got spending cuts under control, we got rid of the fraud, waste, and abuse, if we did a good job and we felt like we were in the right direction on getting control of that and becoming more efficient as a government, and you looked at the situation and we're still revenue short, then I think anybody in their right mind would say, yeah, I'm willing to give a little bit, provided the government spends it the way it should be to pay off our debt, not to increase more programs, not to spend it and put us in more of a debt situation or more peril. Congressman-elect Yoho is not the only Republican who is declining to sign Norquist's no-tax pledge, according to NPR. NPR reports that many Republicans are also willing to make compromises about raising tax revenue in hopes that they can reduce the national debt and fix the economy. Governor Rick Scott has sent a letter to the Federal Department of Health and Human Services asking for a meeting to discuss the state's options for moving forward on the federal health care law. Florida Public Radio's Lynn Hatter reports on the gov reports the governor had been a staunch opponent to the plan dubbed as Obamacare. Governor Scott says he wants to negotiate with the federal government on how best to bring down health care costs. In a letter to Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius, Scott says he doesn't believe that a health insurance marketplace, as outlined in the federal health care law, is the best option for achieving that goal. The state has until December to decide whether to implement an insurance exchange or leave it to the federal government. The state could also run a partnership exchange. The governor was also pressing the federal health care agency to sign off on the state's statewide Medicaid-managed care program, which was approved by the legislature in 2011. But the governor's letter did not address an expansion of Medicaid that could add another 2 million Floridians to the program. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Lynn Hatter in Tallahassee. Welcome back. State-run citizens property insurance has been under fire as its new president disbanded the company's corporate integrity office in the middle of an extensive ethics investigation in August. As Jessica Palumbo reports on Tuesday, Gilway gave the Citizens Board of Directors some answers to questions that had been swirling in the wake of the controversy. Citizens President Barry Gilway came on board in June. He inherited an ongoing investigation into several ethics complaints against employees, including mishandling funds and sexual harassment over the past few years. Gilway says that investigation turned up serious organizational problems and policy flaws in the company. But he says he's addressing those issues, and the so-called bad apples have either been disciplined or let go for their quote-unquote disgusting behavior. Let's not tarnish the reputation <coughs> excuse me of 99.9% of citizens employees who bust their tail for you every single day because of the irrational irresponsible acts 
of a few people. The allegations against employees were revealed in a preliminary report by former internal auditors who hadn't done any interviews or reviewed any personnel files. Gilway says many of the charges, including at least one instance of sexual harassment, came from anonymous tipsters and were found to be untrue when external investigators were brought in. But he says the people accused in the report had already been dragged through the mud in newspapers around the state, and for that he blasted the media. The last time I looked around, we were still in the United States of America. We have not been annexed to a communist regime, and we still have some basic rights. And, and those rights, by the way, include innocent until proven guilty. Gilway told the board when he took over, the Office of Corporate Integrity had four employees, two managers and two junior auditors. He said the managers were not qualified to conduct investigations and had several backlogged complaints going back a year and a half. He said the office needed a change, but he regrets the timing of when he disbanded it in August. When we have the Office of the Attorney General in there completing an investigation on expense control, we move forward and we get some headlines that we eliminate the Office of Corporate Integrity. Dumb decision, yes. He says internal ethics investigators no longer report directly to him, but instead to the newly hired internal audit chief, Joe Martins. And in the wake of the scandal, the company is working on a uniform severance package policy after it was revealed that it paid out $750,000 in severance pay, including $80,000 for a single employee during the restructuring. Board member Carol Everhart said she appreciated the information, but she wishes the board had known about all of the issues sooner. I have been here for a long time, and this is the first that I've heard at the beginning of the year, the first I heard of any of this. Um, So much was kept from the board. To that, Gilway responded that all of the incidents had been viewed on a case-by-case basis until the new audit chief decided to take a look at the underlying issues behind the mismanagement. One of the company's most vocal critics has been Dan Krasner, who heads government watchdog group Integrity Florida. But Krasner says in light of Tuesday's meeting, people should start trusting the company's new leadership. Leaders admit when mistakes are made. They listen to others' ideas and they change direction when necessary. That's what Barry Gilway did to give Floridians confidence that the direction of citizens is improving. Board member John Rollins said the company has experienced tremendous growth in the past few years, ballooning to take on more than one and a half million policies in Florida. With that kind of growth, he said, there are bound to be some problems. And certainly there have been mistakes made, uh, individual cases that that are perhaps head-scratchers and individual behaviors that are perhaps head-scratchers, and we need to move on. We need to put in the procedures and policies in place that are going to allow us to do better. We have a new sheriff in town. Rollins said the media's focus on the scandal has been a distraction from the real issue that the nonprofit insurer of last resort has taken on an unsustainable number of policies. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Since the presidential election on November 6th, there has been a rise in the number of applicants for gun licenses in the state of Florida. The number of background checks almost doubled since this time last year, indicating that people are looking at politics to see if their Second Amendment right to bear arms will be threatened by possible proposed legislation. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM's Luis Geraldo visited a pawn shop in Gainesville that makes most of its business from selling guns. Sapp's Pawn Gun and Archery Shop in Gainesville is celebrating 50 years since it first opened. 
Throughout those years, area residents have trusted their safety concerns to Butch Ford and his family. But since the recent presidential election, some things have changed. Gun sales always go up uh, when a Democratic president become, or comes in office, and normally that's because the Democratic Party has traditionally been anti-gun. Uh, for example, Bill Clinton uh, enacting the gun control or the um, assault weapon ban uh, back when he was president and uh, trying to uh, do away with guns. And it seems now that uh, President Obama has been elected for a second term and he is a lame duck. He has nothing to lose now by uh, attacking our gun rights. The Florida Department of Law Enforcement saw a rise in the number of permits being processed right after the election. The day after the November 6th election, there were 3,019 requests for background checks. That is almost double the amount processed the same date last year. Butch says the growing concern could relate to money. The biggest surge in gun sales right now is, uh, is happening with personal protection type guns, and I believe that that has to do with the state of our economy. He has also seen an increase in the amount of women who have bought handguns for personal protection. Lauren Knight says guns are just one way to feel safer. My dad's whole side of the family are cops, so they obviously believe in the right to bear arms. If I did not have that right, I'd probably find other means to protect myself. Butch agrees and uses an old motto to explain the necessity to bear arms. Just like we did years and years ago, uh, it, things could change dramatically and people are preparing themselves for that, even if it doesn't happen. You know, the old Boy Scout motto, be prepared, is always uh, a good motto to live by. And uh, people are preparing themselves, and if they never use their guns, great. But if we do have a problem and you do need them, then you are protected. Among other things, to be eligible for concealed weapons or firearm licenses in the state of Florida, applicants must be at least 21 years old, not suffer from a physical infirmity, and not be a convicted felon. For Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I am Luis Giraldo. Residents in the city of Gainesville have the opportunity to have repairs done on their homes at no cost to them. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Amanda Delella has more on the federally funded program. City of Gainesville residents have begun applying for the federally funded homeowner rehabilitation program. The federal government has provided the program with a little over $1 million, which is dedicated to help repair health and safety violations in homes of those who may not be able to afford it. Teresa Oshawa of the City of Gainesville Housing and Community Development Division says that there are several house issues that the program seeks to address. Uh, issues would be the heating, the um, windows, doors, the roof leaking, maybe the plumbing is bad and backing up, uh, the sink is leaking, stuff like that. Uh, so we'll go in and take care of items such as that. The funds will be made available to homeowners who fit the eligibility criteria, which includes being in the corporate city limits of the city of Gainesville. Once an applicant is approved, the repair process begins. If they are determined to be eligible, then an inspection will be done by the city's uh, rehab specialist who will determine the extent or the amount of work that needs to be done. Then after that, the, the actual uh, work write-up, which is what identifies the work that needs to be done, it goes out to bid on a competitive basis. And so whomever the lowest bid contractor is, that's who primarily will be awarded the bid. 
The application cycle is only opened up once a year, so many families have made sure to apply for the program early. The application process began on November 26 and works on a first-come, first-served basis until all funds have been used. By the time we got to work and we started work at 7, there were already three families outside in line waiting to come in when we came in because they wanted to be first in to get those applications. So there's always a lot of uh, families ready to participate. Oshoba adds that the benefits of this program are huge for the city because it will help to revitalize neighborhoods. She believes that the biggest reward will be knowing that some families will have homes in better condition. For me, the most benefit would be the reward of knowing that the families are no longer living in in substandard conditions that they can't afford to have repaired themselves. In order to get an application, anyone can drop by the Housing and Community Development Division at the Thomas Center, which is located at 306 Northeast 6th Avenue. Applications will be accepted until the cycle for the program is closed. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, I'm Amanda Delea. More and more nursing homes are evacuating residents to prepare for incoming hurricanes. It is a trend that started after Hurricane Katrina when at least 35 elderly New Orleans residents drowned in their nursing homes. But as Kenny Malone from member station WLRN reports, a recent study shows that for some populations, evacuation has serious consequences. Before Hurricane Gustav made landfall in 2008 in Louisiana, 119 nursing facilities evacuated their residents. Compared to Hurricane Katrina, that's four times as many facilities. A recent study looked at the nursing home population that evacuated during Hurricane Gustav. Lisa Brown is a professor of aging studies at the University of South Florida and a lead author on the study. In total, more than 20,000 residents evacuated during Gustav. Brown says the portion of those residents who were cognitively intact, those without dementia, weathered the evacuation better. It may be that they understand what's going on around them, that I can explain to you, you know, this is what's going on. I need for you to go do X, Y, and Z to remain safe. The striking finding came when Brown focused in on patients who suffered from severe dementia. For those residents, the mortality rate increased more than 200 percent during the first 30 days of being evacuated. Brown says the increase may be a result of the general stress that comes with a mass evacuation and the disruption of day-to-day care. There's no explanation yet since the study was purely numeric, but Brown says that's the next question she'd like to answer. We have to unpack that black box and make a determination of what were the contributing factors and then how might those factors be addressed to reduce future issues and future situations where these disasters occur. Brown says typically we focus on the immediate injuries and fatalities that result from major disasters. She hopes this study will open people's eyes to the far-reaching damage that hurricanes can do. I'm Kenny Malone in Miami. Just a few minutes is all it takes to catch what doctors say can sometimes be a fatal heart issue in newborns called critical congenital heart defect. Florida Public Radio's Regan McCarthy reports the American Heart Association in Florida is working with lawmakers to get new legislation legislation requiring all hospitals to administer what's called a pulse oximetry test to all new babies. Congenital heart defects can be life-threatening unless they're caught early. Alyssa Brown is a volunteer with the American Heart Association and the mother of a three-year-old daughter, McKenna, who has four congenital heart defects. Brown says McKenna's heart troubles were caught early, actually before she was born. And because of that, 
she's not so different from other kids. She's on the playground doing things that other children do, and she can do that because of that early diagnosis. So, you know, again, when you can't be diagnosed prenatally, that pulse oximeter is, you know, the key for 30% more children to be able to enjoy that quality of life and not enter a period of crisis before they leave the hospital. Brown says if her daughter hadn't been diagnosed early, it could have become a much more serious situation. And Dr. Louis St. Petrie, a pediatric cardiologist, says the test to catch it is inexpensive, simple, and can mean the difference between life and death. Because they have a kind of defect uh, where um, if certain changes occur after birth, which are normal, um, they lose all oxygen oxygen supply to their body. And um, if they survive, they very frequently are brain damaged. It's a terrible thing to happen, and it's so simple to prevent. And St. Petrie says the test can be done at the same time as another test that's already required for newborns. All it involves is wrapping a stretchy band with a sensor around the baby's wrist. And then... oxygen on her right wrist. That's it. And all the test takes maybe about a minute. Then the same process is repeated using the baby's foot. The sensor measures how much oxygen is contained in the baby's blood. Pulse oximeters come in a range of sizes. The ones officials are using here are about the size of a cutting board, but they can be as small as a paperback novel a person might pick up at the airport for a quick read. St. Petrie says the test is already done at some hospitals, but is not yet a standard statewide. And he says there's no reason it shouldn't be. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention already recommends the test for every newborn. And St. Petrie adds the cost for the test isn't prohibitive. I think that the only cost is going to be the administrative cost for children's medical services within the Department of Health who uh, will have to administer this program. As far as the cost to the patient, it's minimal. It's just a few pennies for a pulse ox test. And St. Petrie says that's not much of a price to pay, especially when that's compared to the cost of not catching the defect soon enough. A push for similar legislation last session failed because of concerns about possible costs or increases in insurance rates, which St. Petrie says were unfounded. The American Heart Association in Florida says it's partnering with Senator Jeremy Ring, a Democrat from Margate, in their effort to push the legislation in the coming session. For Florida Public Radio... I'm Regan McCarthy. A new report from the International Energy Agency, a European-based intergovernmental organization, predicts that the U.S. will become an energy exporter within a decade and achieve complete energy independence within 20 years. It is a development that will especially benefit us here in Florida. Tom Parkinson from member station WMFE asked economist Hank Fishkind to explain what is behind this change. We've had major structural change in the energy markets in this country. Uh, We've had a dramatic increase in the production of natural gas because of new technology of fracking, and that has caused a a huge reduction in the price of natural gas because the supply has gone up so much. And we've had a major increase in petroleum drilling and new finds, especially in North Dakota and other places, that have caused our production to rise to levels not seen since the 50s. The combination of those things is expected to make the United States one of the biggest energy producers in the world and an energy exporter in a decade. And that is just such a fundamental change in the whole energy market. It will have very significant 
and beneficial effects on the U.S. economy. So then if this report proves to be accurate and the U.S. does become less dependent on foreign sources and has access to uh, plentiful and, and less expensive energy here, that would obviously benefit the entire nation. But you say it would be particularly beneficial for Florida and for Florida's economy. Why is that, Hank? Yeah, particularly here in Florida for a variety of reasons. One, of course, our climate. So we depend upon air conditioning, which is dependent upon electricity. So a reduction in natural gas prices has caused our energy utilities to shift to using more natural gas-fired facilities. The result is somewhat less greenhouse gases, and it will be uh, more stable electric prices. So therefore, it's a little less expensive than it otherwise would have been to live in Florida. Secondly, Florida is a relatively new place, and so its development patterns are dominated by automobile transportation, which means we're very spread out. So we tend to use more gasoline uh, per capita, and we have a lot of tourists who come by automobile. So the combination of those things causes Florida to have much higher gasoline consumption per capita than average for the nation. So this higher level of petroleum production and gasoline production will tend to keep prices down, which will benefit our economy. Of course, a lot of this new energy does come with some pretty costly trade-offs. Here in Florida, we're just you know a couple of years away from the Gulf oil spill, one of the nation's worst environmental disasters. And you know many uh, folks say that the natural gas fracking process you're talking about is also uh, very destructive to the environment. What about these uh, the the environmental impacts? Does that balance out? And is it is it possible, in your view, to achieve this future energy independence without uh, devastating environmental consequences? Well, it certainly appears to be the case in the short run. Now we're increasing our regulations, and there are some concerns, legitimately, about uh, the impacts. You know, energy production is messy. It's always messy. It's going to be messy. Uh, But uh, certainly uh, the economic benefits are so large that I think we will find reasonable ways to regulate the industry, and there will be some additional pollution, and we will live with it. What are the prospects for some of the homegrown energy production plans that we've heard about here in Florida? I'm thinking of uh, biofuels um, produced from corn or algae or or switchgrass or or whatever, um, and, you know, other so-called alternatives like solar and wind. Well, this uh, expansion of energy production causes energy prices to go down with our current pricing system, which then militates against alternative energy projects of all kinds, including solar, because they're more expensive. So unless we have some change in our policies, uh, this expansion in our uh, production of fossil fuels will tend to militate against uh, alternatives. Now, we can affect that by policy. Uh, The state of California has moved dramatically to do that. They have a cap-and-trade policy for carbon emissions. Uh, We have spoken, you and I, uh, in past times about the need to tax carbon emissions. If we would move to such a system, it wouldn't compromise our ability to continue to produce natural gas and oil, but it would change the pricing dynamic and it would have a little more favorable impact on the ability to have alternative energies including solar here in the state of Florida. Well, you know, promoters of, of solar and, and wind energy say, you know, here, we're, we're the sunshine state. It, it's a resource that we, obviously we have plenty of. It's pretty windy here much of the time, too. So, you know, why are we not exploiting those cleaner and, and safer alternatives? It's too expensive. It's very simple. Uh, it, it costs about 32 cents a kilowatt hour to generate electricity from solar, and we pay in 6 to 7 cents a kilowatt hour today. So uh, we need a lot more technological change or a lot higher prices. Now, higher uh, volumes of natural gas production tend to keep electric prices low. 
So given this example, it continues to be uneconomic to generate electricity using solar uh, on a broad-based system. Economist Hank Fishkind talking with WMFE's Tom Parkinson. The lionfish originates in the Indian Ocean and South Pacific, but has found its way into Florida waters as recently as the 1980s. It is not known how the lionfish cross over hemispheres, but one thing is certain. They have become a problem for Florida's ecology. Florida's 89.1 WFTFM's Ben Bornstein has the story. The lionfish has become a problem in Florida waters, and the population is growing almost exponentially. Dr. Tom Fraser, interim director of the School of Natural Resources and Environment, says that the lack of natural predators in Florida is one of the main reasons this fish population is so hard to control and contain. The part of the, the reason that the lionfish have been successful um, in their invaded range is presumably because they lack uh, a number of natural predators. And though we know now that some uh, things will eat them, sharks, for example, have been observed to eat them, Groupers uh, have eaten lionfish off spears and in some cases have been um, trained to, to eat lionfish. So um, there are some fishes that will eat them, but not very many that we're aware of. Fraser believes that this lack of a natural predator leads to the lionfish devouring large numbers of different fish populations that are prosperous for Florida fishermen. This could also lead to heavy ecological losses as well. Uh, the, the concern with uh, uh, an increase in the numbers of lionfish is that they prey on a, a lot of other organisms that are of value to uh, Floridians, um, either commercially important uh, fishes or ecologically important fishes or, or other organisms. And so uh, large and unconstrained numbers of lionfish have the potential to have negative impacts on uh, particularly on coral reef ecosystems and the uh, community structure and, and food web dynamics in those systems. There have been removal efforts by the Fishing and Wildlife Commission, but how effective they have been is still unclear. And Fraser believes that getting numbers of those results will certainly help to figure out what works in the removal of this invasive species. We haven't quantified the results of those removal efforts. Um, we need to do that more to, to evaluate the effectiveness um, of those efforts. So um, it's, it's clear that the lionfish um, are here for the long haul. They're, they're not likely to be eradicated. The local store owner of Aquatropics, Matthias Zafke, says that selling the fish could help eradicate the infestation in the Caribbean and boost Florida's economy as an added bonus. I think if they are a positive economic um, entity and, and, and people can harvest them, we are more likely to get rid of them out of the Caribbean if people can make money on them than if you just have roundups and try to kill them. Zafke sells lionfish in his shop and warns his customers about the dangers of owning one. He also says that although they are not one of the more popular fish in the store, he does sell a decent amount of them each week, and he gets even more people to come just to look at them. That was WFTFM's Ben Bornstein. And thanks for tuning in to the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WFTFM. I'm Juliana Valencia. And I'm Alexis Martinez.